Hi, church. Hi. So I have given a hearty handful of talks and speeches, but had to sort of recalibrate when it came to prepping for my very first Sunday morning sermon. I moved to Providence, Rhode Island, from Raleigh, North Carolina, where I learned a good deal about Southern sermons. And here's what I've been told. They don't qualify as a Southern sermon unless they've got four things. A joke or some sort of comedic endeavor. An illustration. Three catchy and probably alliterated bullet points. And an altar call or a call to faith. So being a high achiever in actuality and a Southerner at heart, I'm going to go for all four, so buckle up. <clears throat> First, the joke. It's me. An anecdote. A couple years ago, I was fresh off of some sort of adventure and needed to get back to Rhode Island, so I purchased a last-minute bus ticket from New York City to Providence. By a show of hand, who here has been to New York City's Port Authority? Oh, bless you all. And if you haven't, then I do not recommend it. It's this loud, bustling, dirty, grimy, incredibly foul-smelling public bus station. So I'm sitting on the floor of this establishment waiting for my bus when a large, bald man in an oversized leather jacket comes up to me and says, excuse me, miss, I'm an undercover police officer, and I have reason to believe that you are a runaway teenager. He went on to explain that my appearance and behavior were suspicious and troublesome. And I thought, you know, sir, you look suspicious and troublesome. Turns out he was indeed an undercover cop because I asked to see the badge. And I have legitimate explanations for every one of my supposedly suspicious behaviors, but another time, another place. So last Sunday, Andrew preached about the importance of reconciling our pride as believers. And I'm here to tell you that I have been humbled many, many times in many, many places. And that I have some trepidation about standing before you this morning, presenting as a 30-year-old woman with authority and not a teenage vagabond. So we are now effectively three minutes into my sermon, and I'm about to really begin in true Andrew Mook fashion, because here in New England, pastors wear Converse sneakers, and they have preambles to their sermons. So if you, like me, have been adventuring or ambling elsewhere this summer, then allow me to catch you up. We are in the middle of a six-week One Another series one another. So there are one another statements all throughout the New Testament, and they are essentially instructions on how we, as Christians, should live with and treat one another. So this phrase, which reads alone in Greek, is used 100 times in 94 verses, and 47 of those give instructions directly to followers of Jesus. Paul wrote 60% of them including the one another statement from today's reading from the book of Galatians, where we will be spending a lot of time this morning. 
Last week, Andrew preached from 1 Peter, unpacking the verse that reads, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And he spoke about allowing the harmony of community to diminish our pride and humble our hearts. And he ended last week's sermon with a statement that I just loved. He said, many of us have more potential to put more wind in more sails of more people. We're just more kind of people. So that's where I'm going to pick up today. How exactly do we put wind in one another's sails? How do we really show up for people? And why does it even matter? So I'm going to read this again to recenter our hearts a bit. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn. If not, I believe it will be on the screen. So it's Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Before we make observations about this passage or explore its meaning or apply it to our lives, it's important to look at the context. So Paul is writing this letter to churches in Galatia that he himself founded years earlier during his missionary journeys. So this letter was not just written to the people of Galatia, but to the Christians in Galatia. And not just written to any Christians, but Christians with whom Paul had a direct relationship. Paul writes them to counter the claims of Judaizers who were legalistic Jewish Christians who believed, among other things, that a number of Old Testament ceremonial practices were still binding in the New Testament church. So these Judaizers insisted that Gentiles who converted to Christianity abide by certain Old Testament laws. So they're telling Christians, hey, in order to be saved, they had to be circumcised, They had to keep the law of Moses. And so this is Paul's impetus for writing this letter. Because he is irritated, annoyed, frustrated. Because the old guard has essentially come in with their strong arm religiosity and intimidated the Christians into giving up their free life in Christ. So he's frustrated with the Judaizers, but he is furious with the Christians for giving in to that intimidation. And Paul himself was converted by Jesus to something radically and entirely different, a free life in Christ. Through Jesus, Paul learned that God was not an impersonal force used to make people behave in these certain prescribed ways, but a personal savior to set them free and live a life of abundance. Paul sees and hears the Galatian Christians taking their eyes off Jesus and ignoring the spirit of God that dwells within them. So I am a therapist, among other bright and varied things. And as a therapist, I love to ask this question when a client is 
distressed or divided, I'll ask, are you feeling this from the outside in or from the inside out? Like, does the source of this pressure, noise, movement, does that seem external? Or is it coming from within you? Because our God does not coerce people from without. He sets them free from within. So this letter is sort of like a reassertion of Paul's thesis statement, and really the Lord's thesis statement. It's this gorgeous collection of truths that follow that moment we have all experienced when the teacher or the parent or the coach says, hey, time out, listen up. And he does this in six brief but bold chapters. Paul says, hey, you guys, cut it out because here's what's important. Galatians, this, this book, it often makes me cry, which isn't saying a lot because I cry every time I'm moved by anything. But it is, it's moving, and it's meant to be. It's the place that we as new Christians can go when we're saved and then are faced with the question, how then should I live? But it's also the place that we as established Christians can go when we're tangled up, when we're ruptured, and when we need to get back to what's important. So this passage in chapter 6 starts by acknowledging that life is hard and sin is real and that sin can have a domino effect. But this is why context is so important, y'all. We can read this standing alone and say, uh, yeah, we have to speak truth. We, just, we have to restore each other gently. We have to call each other out. Well, sure, we do. But to begin and end there would be a giant adventure in missing the point. Because this entire letter is Paul urging the people of Galatia to not get caught up in the law. He's drawing from his own experience in Judaism before his encounter with Christ and trying to express how destructive zeal for the law can actually be. And he spends the majority of this powerful letter, meaning the first five chapters, talking about the freedom of the gospel, the grace, not the works, but the grace that is entirely sufficient for salvation, meaning life forever with him, and the reminder to love your neighbor. So is sin real? Yes. Is temptation real? Totally. Should we do our earnest best to avoid sin? Absolutely. And should we try to help others avoid sin? Also, yes. But let us not forget about the grace and the love that abounds life in Christ because that is the point. So, the one another statement here in chapter 6 is carry one another's burdens. Other versions of the Bible use bear one another's burdens or share one another's burdens. Well, what are burdens? I mean, bless. What isn't a burden? To be human is to be burdened. Even the blessings in our life like employment, like marriage, like money, like children, they can be burdensome in that they are loads that we carry, and at times they can be really heavy. And at times they can feel downright impossible. So sometimes tangible external stressors are burdensome. So like the angels that are Dave and Laura Di Pilato, 
having triplets. So that's three babies at one time. That is a very overt burden. But others are harder to identify, these invisible stressors that can be equally, if not more, burdensome. So crippling worry, paralyzing fear, unexplainable hopelessness, those things that creep in and camp out in our souls like trespassers when we feel left behind, when we can't get pregnant, when we're stuck in addiction and don't know our way out, when we're surrounded by people but still feel terribly lonely. Some wisdom I've received about what to do with burdens. And here's where that three points, the three bullet points come in with alliteration. So if you're the note-taking type, this is your time to engage in that glorious dance between pen and paper. The three different ways to respond to a burden. One, surrender. Give it to God. Put it at the foot of the cross. This ties back to what Andrew preached about last week. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Two, shoulder. Some stressors are meant to be carried. In fact, this very passage indicates that. In the first five verses of this chapter in Galatians, Paul speaks not once but twice about burdens. And the second time, in verse 5, he tells us to not compare ourselves with someone else, for each one should carry his own load. But notice the word usage here. Because the word load is different than the word burden. The word that Paul uses is the word for a soldier's pack. Theologian William Barclay elaborates this on this and says, there is a duty which none can do for us and a task for which we must be personally responsible. So here, some discernment may be necessary. Is this a burden you need help carrying? Or is this a load you should bear on your own? Because scripture makes it clear that we're called to take responsibility for our own lives. So, man, these are the things I'm not great at. Traffic, bills, laundry. But those are normal loads. Like, I want to carry your burdens. Give me your heaviest rock. I'm going to put it on my back and we're going to trek to the mountaintop. But please don't call me to tell me how deeply aggravated you are that someone with exactly 17 groceries cut ahead of you in the 10-item express checkout lane. That's a burden that you can and will shoulder on your own. Like, know your own pack, soldier. So first, surrender. Second, shoulder. Put it on your back and press on because this is a load that will strengthen you or discipline you or equip you or teach you or humble you or just give you an opportunity to read some tabloids in the grocery store line or like 2018 equivalent, catch up on your Insta feed. Third, third way we can respond to a burden, share. This is the kind of burden that Paul writes about in verse 2 when he urges us to carry one another's burdens. Those deep burdens that come with the chances and the changes of life. And we can take it back to the second chapter in the entire Bible, Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. 
So when God created the literal universe, Scripture tells us it was good. But not so good for man to be alone. So let me take this a little further to drive my point home. The sun, the moon, the earth, the sea breathed into existence for the very first time in actual ever good. Man living alone, not good. God created us for one another. He created us for community. He created us for life together. That's what this entire one another series is about, folks. How we are to live with and love on one another. Because we're meant to. Which is often countercultural, right? Like there's this idea that is propagated, particularly in Western culture, that we're supposed to be independent and separate. Sure, we need help when we're young, but really, we should get independent as soon as possible. But the Bible gives an entirely different narrative. And guess what? So does science. For a long time, there was this idea that mothers responding to children when they cry is actually bad for kids. This was prevalent, and in some circles still is. If your kid cries, leave them alone, let him cry, the child will learn that he's fine. There's a place for that, but it was, this, was, this was really pushed to that end of the spectrum. And then a British psychologist by the name of John Bowlby came along and studied infants after World War II. Specifically, he studied orphans and widows, children who had lost their parents. And he found that children who were taken out of London in the Blitz and left with families they didn't know in the countryside were infinitely worse off than the kids who were left in the Blitz with their parents or parent. He went on to study children and their mothers, and some of you may be familiar with this experiment, but he would place an infant and a mother together in a room, and then he'd have the mother leave. And then after some time, he'd have the mother come back in. So, pretty basic, this kind of human drama of separation and reconnection, but also so essential. Like, is, the, is that not what life is about, the vulnerability of love and loss of separation and reunion? So Bowlby found that a happy, healthy child calls to the mother when the child is in need of contact or the child feels threatened or the child feels uncertain. And as the mother responds, the child's, the child's heart rate actually changes. Their stress hormones decline. There's an influx of other healthier hormones that enter into the bloodstream, and the child is able to reach this emotional balance where they can play, they can go out into the world, they can explore. So essentially, the child can do what they were created to do. So this is who we are. We are bonding creatures. One of the most well-respected couples therapists in the world, a woman by the name of Sue Johnson, says, Loving one another is not a strange mix of sex and sentiment, whether you're a child or an adult. 
It's an ancient wired-in survival code designed to keep someone who will come when you call close to you. And as believers, we know exactly who is responsible for that design. New research actually shows that vulnerability is wired into your nervous system, that neurologically, your body actually assumes that when you call, someone will come. And when you're little, that's, that's true. If you call and no one comes, you won't survive. But our brains don't outgrow that need for proximity, that need for connection. It's so gorgeously and intimately and permanently human. And, you know, it's, it's quite interesting to me that the richest research on the human experience doesn't come from bliss. The most formational science on human beings, on infants and elders and every stage in between, comes from the pursuit to understand people's pain. Not dismissing it, not talking them out of it, not throwing a Band-Aid on it or calling them weak, just simply seeking to understand it. Because the very essence of strength is vulnerability, and yet we're conditioned to believe that people, especially men, that their, their strength comes not from vulnerability, but from invulnerability. Like our movies are all about these invulnerable superheroes. And that, that image of strength in our culture, it, it's just a sham. Because on some human level, in our breath and in our bones, we know that the essence of strength is to identify and express our own sensitivities and vulnerabilities, to understand that we are better together. And reaching for other people is who we are. Our bodies tell us so, the Bible tells us so, and science tells us so. God designed us to be bonding people. We need safe haven relationships. We need people who will be there for us, that will be responsive to us, that we can turn to for safety. And when we do that, it does far more than tranquilize our nervous system. It gives us balance. It allows us to grow and thrive and deal with our insecurities and burdens in a positive way. It allows for people, not addictions or vices or escapes, people to function as our on-earth landing place and launching pad. Bottom line here, we need to do life within the context of safe haven relationships because when we have them, we thrive. So as a marriage and family therapist, this is my livelihood, this is my wheelhouse, this is my passion, encouraging, guiding, and coaching people on how to do life together even when they're burdened, especially when they're burdened. And that's not a whole lot different than the reason I think I'm up here today, because for some reason, the God of the universe is using me, just a teenage runaway at heart, to encourage you to share your burdens with one another, to engage in reciprocal vulnerability with other believers, to share your burdens and to carry the burdens of others. One theologian reflects on the call to carry one another's burdens and says this, 
Human friendship is where we bear one another's burden and is part of God's purpose for his people. These burdens can include our faults, tensions, and griefs. These can be burdens caused by social, economic, spiritual, or other conditions. We must seek a Christian friend who will help bear those burdens with us, and we can do so by praying and counseling together. Interesting. Praying and counseling. So praying is not just the work of pastors. I believe I have a slide on this with the scriptures. But James 5.16 says that, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We're meant to pray for one another. And counseling is not just the work of counselors. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. An abundance of counselors? That's what the body is. We get to have an abundance of counselors. Go free. This is really important, friends. Sanctuary Church is a place that believes that church, in the truest, most biblical sense of the word, is about far more than a Sunday morning service. Pastor Andrew, Pastor Sarah, they're exceptional pastors. I could come to them in a crisis, and I have, and I could follow them into the dark, and I am. It's called a church plant. But it's not my pastor's job to carry my burdens. It's the job of my church, my home group, my people, my circle, my safe haven. Paul David Tripp wrote a book that I would recommend to anyone. It's called Instrument in the Redeemer's Hands. It's all about how we can and should navigate helping broken people when we ourselves are broken people. He says this, we could never hire enough paid staff to meet the ministry needs of the average local church. The culture of the modern evangelical church must be forsaken for the ministry model God has so wisely ordained. The ministry model God has so wisely ordained. You know what verse in scripture encapsulates that ministry model? Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 vintage, y'all. Carry each other's burdens, and this will fulfill the law of Christ. And let's not just stop at carry one another's burdens. Let's slide on over to the second part of that verse, where Paul says the law of Christ is fulfilled when his people carry the burdens of sinners. So the law of Christ, which we can find in the gospel of John chapter 13, verse 34, in Jesus's very own words, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And, and Paul reminds us of that command just one chapter earlier before in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, which reads, The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Allow me to press on to the illustration portion of my Southern Gypsy High Achieving Sermon here, friends. By introducing an artistic metaphor that I have used often in my life, 
in my ministry, and in my therapy practice. So I lived in Japan for a few years growing up. And since then, my parents have displayed beautiful pieces of Japanese art throughout our home. And a Japanese art form that absolutely captivates me is the practice of kintsuki. So literally, kintsuki means golden joinery. It's the Japanese art of repairing damaged pottery with gold. I believe I have a photo of this. So when a plate or a cup or a vase breaks, the Japanese do not discard it. They put it back together in such a way that doesn't conceal the breaks but accentuates them. And they do this by pouring lacquer made of pure powdered gold into the cracks, restoring the functionality of the broken vessel while simultaneously adding to its beauty and its worth. We are broken vessels, called to love on other broken vessels. And we can't piece each other back together. That's God's job. And we can't, by simply sharing, be restored. And that's why surrendering to God, like it says in 1 Peter 5, 7, is imperative. That's why shouldering our own circumstances, like it says in Galatians 6, 5, is important. But without sharing, there's no lacquer. And without people, there is no gold. When we carry one another's burdens, we're pouring gold into the broken parts. And man, do I know broken. I am uniquely prone to wreckage and breakage. And if you know me, that doesn't surprise you at all. Like, it would have been easier if I just came out of the womb with a darling little wrist tattoo that read EGR, extra gold required. Like, hey, watch out for this one. She's going to break a lot. But by the grace of Jesus, her soul will be sealed. And when she enters into the kingdom of heaven, she's going to have more gold than vessel. More sparkle than substance. But here's what's important about that. That gold, not me, not my doing, poured into me 100%. That's why I call my girlfriends my tribe of angels. So those in my home group, some of whom are in the pews today, and those who have endured many seasons with me spread across this country, I am who I am today because I have insanely generous, gold-pouring friends. And honestly, when you have friends that have pour been pouring gold into your broken pieces for decades, they become your greatest treasures. And I am such a broken mess that I am convinced that God has blessed my friends with extra gold just for me. So whose vessel are you pouring into? Where are you pouring gold? And who is pouring gold into you? Because if you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus and you don't know the answer to these questions, let's talk. Seriously, I'm accepting new clients at Karis Counseling Center. Hit me up at the Next Steps Bar after service.
like Paul to the Galatians, I want to stop and say, hey, listen up. This is important. Get yourself some gold-pouring friends. And if you're not sure where to begin, just get busy pouring gold because brokenness is everywhere. And you know, pouring gold, carrying one another's burdens doesn't always look the same. Get creative. The message version of Galatians 6, so a more modernized, translated version written by Eugene Peterson, which I won't read to you today, but I do encourage you to look up. In his paraphrasing of Paul's words, he urges us to be creative, not once, but twice. So get creative with your gold pouring. Send a text, a prayer, or an edible arrangement. Or get crazier. Put your broken-hearted roommate in your passenger seat and drive past your ex-boyfriend's house repeatedly, each time screaming nonsense at the windshield at the absolute top of your lungs because you have no idea what else to do or say. I've done that. They ended up getting married, though, so full circle. Buy your broke and terribly depressed friend a week's worth of groceries and then just leave them at her doorstep. That has been done for me. Book a same-day flight across the country to immediately be with your friend when her long-time, lifelong dog dies. I've done that. Pull an all-nighter helping your friend meet a work deadline she totally forgot about even though there's absolutely nothing in it for you. That's been done for me. Loan a friend. Pajamas in the form of a cool uncle t-shirt and a blow-up mattress to sleep in when she gets locked out of her house and loses both of her shoes on the roof. Joe and Sia, thank you for coming through that night. You pour gold by showing up when it's convenient and when it's totally not. By listening, by speaking truth, and not just bearing but caring about one another's burdens. You don't, need a, you don't need to be a pastor or a counselor to get creative about that. And now, here's that altar call, the New England version, because I'm not going to summon you to the altar to show your commitment to Christ. But I am going to summon you to a life of burden sharing and burden carrying because you need it because you were created for it because you can't so recall last week when Andrew said that many of us have more potential to put more wind in more sales of more people well Mook I take your statement I raise you another many of us have more potential to pour more gold into more cracks of more people. So go do it. Please bow your heads. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Just thank you for a church that values community so much that it would dedicate its summer to the one another's. May we be those one another's. I just, I praise you, God, for this place and for its leadership. 
I thank you for creating us to be vulnerable beings in desperate need of one another for connection, for safety, for landing, and for launching. So God, as the, began, as the band begins to play, come as you are, I pray that we would do just that. That we would just come as we are, as we sing with open hearts, seeping out in ways that are true and real and raw and vulnerable, God, with an acknowledgement that we are indeed broken vessels. God, I pray that you would show us where we need to surrender and what we're meant to shoulder and how we're supposed to share. I pray that we would be a community that routinely and repeatedly, courageously pours gold into one another so that we can shine bright for your kingdom, God. And so this place and this city would know that we are followers of you, not just for our love for you, but through our love for one another. I pray all these things in your your son's sweet, holy, and precious name.